Good morning. Lively bunch. It's going to be a long 28 minutes. On my personal hierarchy of most terrifying moments, learning to drive stick shift is near the top. How many of you know how to drive stick shift? Yeah, so you, you carry the same scars with you. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Um, that's, a, that's a daunting task. And I remember learning to drive, my dad trying to teach me because the car that I was going to drive in order to get to my job was a 1988 navy blue manual Volkswagen Jetta. Manual everything. Like everything that could be manual was manual in this car. It's like a, a small step above like the Fred Flintstone mobile. So my dad is teaching me how to drive this, and I wasn't all that excited about learning. I was like, eh, I'm okay. I don't know. I'm not super excited about this. I had yet to master the clutch and the handbrake and all that stuff. I was, was not super excited. I didn't really want to learn, and so my dad would kind of force me to go out. We'd drive around our, our neighborhood, and I'd come back like sweaty, like I just ran a half marathon. I remember one day, my dad's trying to get me to be willing to go out more, so we're driving, and he's kind of driving me through our neighborhood, and I'm just kind of following him, going where he tells me to, and I don't realize until we're at an intersection that we've come out at the base of a large hill, and I mean large hill, like alarmingly large, like what monster put a road on this hill? And I am pretty scared at this point. Like, I'm like, ah! And my dad is kind of helping me, coaching me through it, working the handbrake, and I'm just like white-knuckled, holding on to this thing for dear life. Like, I feel like I blacked out and woke up at the top of the hill. I don't even know how we made it. So we take another left at the intersection, and we head down, and we're, we're going back to sort of turn into our road. Um, and up to this point, I haven't had to come to a complete stop. I was able to kind of roll and turn. And so even up the steep hill, I kind of like roll a little momentum. But there's cars behind me on our road, and there's cars coming the other way. And so there's a slight incline, and I have to come to a complete stop to turn left because there's cars coming. And I think I should just move to Africa right now. <laughs> like someone will take the car. I'll leave the keys in it. That would be an easier solution at this point. And my dad's trying to like coach me through it. And I, and I am so, I'm like shaking. Like, I don't want to do this. And he's like, no, you can do it. And there's cars coming and I, and I don't want to go. There's like a gap and I don't go. And there's cars honking behind me. And I feel like saying, you're not making this any better. So finally there's a window and I just floor it. Drop the clutch. We peel out like, I, like it's, a, like it's a, some sort of stock car race. And we drive and I'm like, uh, I'm like pa panting. I can't believe it. It was so stressful, but I did it successfully, and I didn't die, and nobody else died. I accomplished it. My dad gave me an opportunity. He gave me an opportunity to learn a skill that I didn't have that I needed. He provided an opportunity for me. It was, it was something that I needed to know how to do. I didn't want to do it. I mean, I was very clear on that part, but I needed to do it. And it would come in handy a couple years later when I'm leading a team to Serbia. We fly into Hungary, fly into Budapest, and we're driving. A, a some guy picks us up in a van. Sounds like the plot of Taken 4, I guess, but picks us up in a van, and, and he's driving us to this to city in Serbia where the missionaries are. Uh, they didn't, weren't able to meet us. I don't speak any, well, I only speak enough Serbian to order like ice cream. Uh, 
I don't really speak anymore, but we should be fine, right? He knows where he's going. And we get to the border. There's a long line. And the guy says to me, starts making motions, like, you, you drive? And, and I'm like, right, what? He's like, you, you know where you drive? And he's motioning, like, do I know how to drive stick shift? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, show me. I'm like, what? Is this being taped somewhere? Like, what, what is this? So I'm like, okay. So I get in the driver's seat. And once he sees that I know how to engage the clutch, He's like, okay, you drive. And then he leaves. And at that point, I'm the only adult with like 10 or 12 high school students. And I'm, I think, 26, just starting out in ministry. And I'm at least aware enough to know, okay, I need to hold it together for everyone else. Because what I wanted to do was go, what are we going to do? Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm inching my way up to the border crossing. And I'm like, if I get there, and he's, I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm just going to look at him and be like, oh, there's a guy used to be here. I don't know. <laughs> Thankfully, at the last minute, he comes back out, takes over, and sits down, and never tells me what was going on. So the rest of that trip, I'm just like, this better not happen again. I don't know if he went to the bathroom. I have no idea. But it is a good thing I knew how to drive stick shift. Because if I didn't, what would have happened? My dad provided me an opportunity to learn something I didn't want to learn, but that I needed to learn. And that was important. This morning, as we continue our series, Extraordinary, looking at the life of Elisha, we're going to be looking at the idea of extraordinary provision, the way that God provides for us. We are all looking for God to provide for us in some way, all of us. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's in finances. Maybe it's something internally, something emotionally we're working through. We're all looking for God to provide for us. And we're going to look at how God provides in this story. We're going to turn, to, you can turn if you have a Bible with you, 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. I want to give you a little background on where we are very quickly to let you know what's going on. It'll help the story make a little more sense. Right now, Israel is split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom has been ruled by a series of evil kings who are leading the people away from God to idol worship. And they're turning the people away. And it's a problem. And there's a, there's a group of prophets, there's a group of people that are faithful, but they're small in number. And they're being persecuted and they're being hunted. In fact, we can look back to 1 Kings 18 and get a sense of what's going on because we see in verse 4, it says, Once when Jezebel, who was the wife of this evil king, she was evil in her, in her own right, Jezebel had tried to kill all of the Lord's prophets. She had put a, a bounty out on their heads. It says a hundred of them were hidden in two caves, and they were supplied with food and water to be protected. I mean, that's the climate that this is taking place in. We're going to read right now 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you? Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all, except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and your neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. 
And soon every container was filled to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. This is a story that we're going to dive into, and there's three main actors in this story. And we're going to look at how, what they did and how we can identify with that. There's three main actors. There's the widow, there's Elisha, and then there's God. So three main actors. First, we're going to look at the, women, the woman, the widow, and what she did. The widow cried out. The widow cried out. She's desperate. She's deep in debt and her husband has died and she cannot possibly hope to pay this back. She has no means to, no way to make this money back. It's not going to happen. We see that her husband was a godly man and he was a prophet who served with Elisha. In fact, we wonder if all their money was gone because they spent it taking care of those prophets we mentioned before. Jewish tradition, or I'm sorry, a Jewish law says that there's a way to repay a debt that you can't pay. And it's being sold into a period of servanthood in order to repay it. And that's what she's looking at right now. Her son's being taken away to pay this debt. But that's a problem for her because a widow had to rely on her children to support her. If her sons were sold into this debt slavery, then she would have no means of support. In this period of injustice and persecution for people who are faithful to God, this widow faces a bleak future with very little hope. She's lost her husband. Her money is gone. She's living in absolute poverty. And now her sons are going to be taken away. It's a sobering reality we're looking at. It's a sobering reality. Folks, life is not always going to be easy. Life is not always going to be easy. The righteous and the faithful may suffer. We know from this story that her husband was faithful. Her family had been faithful. They had supported those faithful to God at risk to themselves. They, they supported those who were faithful to God against this corrupt king who was leading the country to worship false gods. This family paid a high price for their commitment to God. We like to think of life as something that will be what we want, that it will be good, that it will be easy, that, that that's a, an appealing vision for us. But the problem is it's just not reality. Life will not always be easy. We see that all throughout the Bible when there are stories of people that are faithful to God who suffer, who, who suffer injustice, who who are picked on, who are persecuted. We see it explicitly in, in verses like James 1-2, which says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, but when. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And if we're honest, that can seem unfair to us, right? I, I did all the right things. I, I, I took all the right steps. Like, I don't deserve this. It's the way that we can look at that. But folks, being a follower of Jesus does not mean we get to escape hardship. Frankly, it means the opposite. It means that we will be opposed. It means we will face challenges. It means that our lives absolutely will be hard at times. Absolutely. So what do we do when that happens? We do what the widow did. 
the widow cried out. She cried out. What I find fascinating is she didn't even ask Elisha a specific thing. She, there's not, she didn't really even ask him a question. She just shared her story, shared her hurt. She cried out. She wasn't concerned with what people thought. In her pain, in her hurt, in her fear, she cried out. She knew she needed help, and so she cried out. There's a realness and a rawness to that word. There's pain and there's fear and there's confusion. Are we going to invite people in to our hardship? Are we going to invite people into those hard moments? Or are we going to keep them out? Because we think we can do it on our own. Are we going to cry out? Now, what does that mean? I think it means that we can, with all the honesty and emotion that we are going through, cry out to the God who loves us and cares for us. We don't need to sanitize how we feel. God is big enough to hear it. God is big enough to receive it. That God wants us to come honest and open. It can mean are you praying? Are you talking with God? Are you saying, God, I am hurt. I don't know where you are. What's going on? The Psalms are filled with people saying things like that, speaking their hurt and their pain out to God. But crying out can also mean, are you willing to invite others in? Are you willing to say, this is me and this is how I feel? Are you willing to cry out like the widow did? second actor in this story we see is Elisha. And what Elisha did was Elisha pointed. Elisha pointed to someone else. Elisha pointed to God. Elisha didn't meet her needs personally in this story. The widow shares her story. She pours out her heart. And then Elisha says, what can I do to help you? And she, what do you have in the house? And she tells him, I have nothing except this tiny little flask of olive oil. And then Elisha lays out a plan. But what he does is, he doesn't say, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to point you to the God who is capable of meeting your needs. I'm going to point you to that God. Because what Elisha knows is that God cares deeply for the marginalized and the hurt. God cares deeply for those on the fringes. All throughout the Old Testament, we see promises that God has made to care for the widows and the orphans. We see those specific words, and Elisha knew that. And so when this widow comes, he points her back to the God who can provide for her perfectly. He points her back. I love that, that this miracle goes on Elisha's scorecard. So when, I, when all these prophets are in heaven and they're comparing, you know, comparing what they do, Elisha gets credit for this one. But Elisha wasn't even present when it happened. That's pretty awesome. You don't even have to be there and you get credit for it. He's not even in the room. He tells her what to do and, and, and she does it, but he wasn't even there because he pointed specifically, clearly to God. I think that story is told that way on purpose. It's structured as to leave no doubt that God is the one who is powerful. Elisha pointed her to the God who is capable of meeting her needs. I spent this past week in Haiti and I went down to Spend time with a pastor down there, a young guy. Support him, do some training. I was really impressed with this guy. His name's Samuel. He's 27 years old, came to know Jesus at 19. He's only had a little bit of training, but he's investing in the lives of people in a city that is very spiritually dark. There's a lot, there's a lot of voodoo practice going on. 
and he's by himself with, with little support. And we were talking this week, and I asked him, how do you do this? What's that like? And he said something to me that was incredibly profound. He said, I pray every day that God would bring in someone who is more capable than I am. He'd bring, I pray every day that God would bring in someone who can do this better than me. But if he doesn't, I pray that God would use me. Samuel so clearly pointed back to God. Samuel was saying, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about what God is doing. It's about what he can do. It's about what he will do. It's about what he has done. It's not about me. Do you point to the God who can provide help for others? Do you point to that God? These actions, this story required faith on the part of the widow. As Elisha pointed to God, the widow was left with, what am I going to do? Am I going to live this out? Am I going to do what you've said? Go, sell, pay, live. Those are all actions on her part that she's told to do. She had a piece in this. She didn't sit back and wait. She had a role. She acted in faith. She had to trust that something would actually happen. Imagine, that's hard. Imagine that's you. Imagine, put yourself in her shoes. You're told to go around your neighborhood and collect all of the jars you can find. So you show up at your neighbor's house and you're like, hey, so hi, how you doing? Oh, love the haircut, looks great on you. Really frames your face nicely. So, uh, crazy story. Could I borrow all of the jars that you have? Imagine going to Home Depot. Yeah, I need all of your buckets. Now, I'm concerned what you, you may have heard me say was, I need a lot of buckets. When what I actually said was, I need every bucket you have. I need all the buckets. What are people going to ask you? Why? How are you going to answer that? Well, I'm glad you asked. A guy told me to get them all. That sounds crazy. That sounds crazy, but she did it. She went and she asked. She went and she engaged. She did it. It must have looked nuts to people, but she did it. She poured the oil. She had to take that step. Now imagine that, right? She has this tiny little flask of oil and she's got to take that step to first pour it. I mean, what's she saying to her sons? Like, I wonder how many jars we can fill with this. Any guesses? A tenth of one? I like it. She had to do it. She had to have the faith that something would happen. And then when this is all done, when she has a house full of these, these vessels that are filled with olive oil, she goes back to Elisha and says, what next? She didn't assume. She didn't say, well, this must all be for me. She said, what's next? Tell me what to do next. She demonstrated great faith to take those steps. Elisha pointed her to the God who could provide for her needs and she acted in faith that he could and that he would. And the last actor in this story is God. And what God did here was God provided. God provided. God didn't just provide a simple solution to the widow's problem. He demonstrated that he deeply, deeply cares for people. And I think we see that in, in the mechanics of the story. It's interesting that we see that the oil didn't stop flowing until they noticed they were out of vessels to put it in. That's a very specific detail. Why have that detail? The oil didn't stop flowing until they were out of vessels. Every vessel was filled. 
every vessel was filled and only then the oil stopped. Why? I think God wanted them to feel cared for and God wanted to show them the richness of his provision. That God could have just stopped it when it was done, but God said, I want you to see that I could keep going if you had more vessels, but it's only because you notice you're done that I'll stop. God wanted to communicate that. That is so much oil, by the way. Somebody order some bread and let's dip some of this stuff because it's just a house filled with jars of oil. That's a lot of oil. And that's an expensive commodity at this time. What's cool about what God does here, what's meaningful about it is that there's a present and there's a future solution here. God didn't just say, I'm gonna pay your debt and then we move on. God thought about not just today for her, but about tomorrow. Not just about today, but tomorrow. Pay off the debt and live off the rest. Pay off the debt and live off the rest. She didn't even ask for that. But she's told to pay off the debt and live off the rest because God isn't just answering this tiny little question. God is showing her he cares by providing for her future as well. God often uses people like Elisha here to accomplish his plans. Often. We see that over and over again in the Bible. Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to be used? In 2016, a Polish discus thrower won a silver medal at the Olympics. I mean, it's a big deal. That's, that's the pinnacle of his chosen profession, what he's invested his life in. He gets a silver medal. I mean, that, being top, he's top two in the world at something. And he hears about a three-year-old boy with eye cancer. And his family cannot pay for his medical treatment. And so what this guy does, Piotr Malakowski, puts his silver medal up for auction. This goal that he has pursued his entire life, he puts it up for auction. He, looks at, he says, this matters less to me than what I could do for you. And the highest bid at the time, at the time when it was taken down was $19,000, but even that wasn't enough. It was a drop in the bucket because the total cost of the surgery was $126,000. But a brother and sister who are filthy rich that lived in Poland saw what he was doing and said, we will pay the, for this medal. We will pay for whatever you are short for the surgery. Could God have just healed this boy? Absolutely, God is capable of doing that. But look at God using people, using people in that story to provide for others. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean when we think, talk about God providing? God meets our needs, not necessarily our wants. God meets our needs, not necessarily our wants. When we think about God providing for us, we are quick to make it material things. We're quick to make it money. We're quick to make it stuff. We're quick to make it a job or, or a car. And it's not that needing those things are bad. It's not that. But we are quick to only see God provide in that one way, giving us the stuff that we need. But God provides what we need even if we don't know it, even if we don't know we need it. Things like friendship, Accountability, comfort, care, support, peace, joy, hope. 
God provides those things that we desperately need. He provides these things that we don't even realize. Maybe he's providing you someone to listen to you, to make you feel cared for and validated. Maybe he's providing for you a clear-eyed look at who you really are, not who you wish you were. Maybe he's providing for you an opportunity to grow, to be tested, to put your faith into action, to be challenged. What's God providing for you right now? But what do you do if you feel like God isn't providing? Maybe you're saying, well, I've been asking God and he's not doing anything. I've been asking God to heal me and he's not, or I've been asking him for a job and he's not. What do you do if, if, if we feel like God isn't providing? What I would tell you is this. God knows what you need better than you do, better than I do. If God is not providing that thing you are asking for, then you need something different. And the problem for us is that's hard to accept. But God knows what we need better than we do. Better than we do. There are things that are more important whether we know it or not. And God provides those things for us if we will receive them. Because ultimately what God provides is a rescuer. That's ultimately what God provides for us. Because in this story we see an insurmountable debt paid by an extravagant gift from God. A debt that could never be hoped to be repaid. God extravagantly pays. God didn't just provide enough to pay that debt either. He provided more than enough to pay that debt fully and for the widow to live debt-free. And folks, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Paid our debt and paid more so that we could live debt-free. The life found in Jesus is not just the promise of, of life, a future life in heaven. It's not just that promise, but also a richer, fuller, more satisfying life here, now, on earth. The life that we hunger for in our soul, the life that we crave, the promise of Jesus is not just that the future will be perfect, but that now will be more satisfying than I could hope. That's what God provides do you know that kind of life? Do you know that kind of life? God is the source of extraordinary provision. He is. A friend of mine named Rob is from Zimbabwe. Rob hadn't been feeling well for a while. He just found out that his wife was pregnant with their first kid, and they're very excited, but he, has, he just hasn't been feeling well. And one day, his wife goes into the bathroom to find him passed out on the floor. They take him to the doctor, and after running a lot of tests, what they find out is that Rob was born with only one kidney, and his kidney is failing. Rob needs to undergo regular dialysis to keep his body free of those toxins. The problem is, the short-term care that Rob needs is incredibly expensive in Zimbabwe. And the long-term care that he needs just isn't available to him. I remember talking with my boss at the time about the situation who was involved in this. I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world, and I think I have a sense of, of kind of what things are like culturally, but I was still baffled that this, it could be, I think it was 2015, that it could be 2015, and it's an acceptable outcome to say that someone in the, in, in the Western world 
cannot get a life-saving surgery that they need, that it's an acceptable outcome to say he just is going to die. It's hard for me to accept. How is this possible? But that's what, what Rob was facing. And so our church started to look to rally around him from thousands of miles away and start to pay for him to get dialysis and eventually brought him over. And there are so many hurdles for him to be healthy. Had to find a, a hospital that would be willing to take him in with no insurance and a doctor who'd be willing to do the procedure and, and a place to provide the, medi the medications that he's gonna need for the rest of his life, but ultimately a kidney donor. And the donor list is very long. His only hope is gonna be finding a kidney. But that's a hard sell. There's a young name named, named Michael who was at that church. He interned for me one summer. One of the warmest, most kind men I've ever met. And Michael has been planning on giving to support Rob financially. He just had forgotten to drop the check off at the church. And, Rob, and Michael feels kind of in his gut that God is nudging him to say, that's not what you're supposed to give. And Michael is, is freaked out by this and he prays about it and he talks with his family and he just is unsettled. But one night, what seals the deal is he's praying and he feels God prompting, poking on his heart, nudging him, saying, if this were your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad, would you donate your kidney? And Michael realizes I would do it in a second. I'd do it without anesthesia. I'd jump up right now and then he could feel God poking on him saying, isn't Rob your brother? Because Michael realized that that is exactly what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus had done for him. Give him something he, he did not deserve, that he could never earn, that he could never repay, and that Jesus did that willingly. And so how could he not love someone else the same way? And so Michael decided to do it, decided to do it. And what's amazing is he not only turns out to be a match, but Michael turns out to have like super mutant kidneys that process more toxin than a normal kidney. This came at great sacrifice for him. That is a painful surgery and a long recovery. And there are things he had to give up for the rest of his life because he couldn't risk injury. But he did it willingly. What did God provide to Rob through this story? Because Rob is, is healthy his body's accepted the kidney. He's doing really well. God provided for Rob life. Rob's been able to see his daughter born and grow up, to use his story to share with others. God provided support. God provided money, the hospitals, doctors, all of these things. But what's crazy is God provided for Michael too. God provided material things for Rob, but God provided immaterial things for Michael. Because what Michael would say is that this was one of these seminal moments of his life where he understood God in a deeper, richer, fuller way. Where he got to participate in the mission of God towards us. He engaged with something he never thought he would. That he, His faith grew dramatically through this. Michael experienced blessing too because God provided for him. God is our perfect provider. That's the hope we look to. That's the hope we look to. And so I want to encourage you and challenge you to cry out to God like the widow did. To spend time talking with God, to pray with, to God, to, to pour your heart and your soul, to allow those hurt and those, that pain and that frustration, 
Pour that out to him because he loves you and he wants to hear. Invite others into that process. Let other people come alongside you. Look to come alongside others. Cry out. Do not be afraid of that. Secondly, point to the God who provides. Point to the God who provides. See this as an opportunity to live out your faith in real, meaningful ways. To say that I I know that I cannot do this on my own, but I want to live to follow the God who can for me. To live in faith, to take those steps to say, I don't see it and it scares me, but I trust that you are good and that you will care for me. Look to God as your provider. What can you do this week to look to God as your provider? To say, God, you know me better than I know myself. Help me understand what I need. Help me to understand how you are caring for me, how you are doing things for me that I don't even understand or see. And then lastly, be willing to be used in someone else's life. Be willing to be used like Elisha was here, like Michael was. Be willing to be used because God is our perfect provider and he has provided so richly for us. Why don't you bow your heads with me? I want to leave you with a couple questions as we close. Are you asking God to give you what you want or are you asking God to provide what he knows you need? Are you asking God to do what you want or are you asking God to show you what he wants for you? Are you asking God to change you or are you asking God to change for you?